Welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. My guest today is Lisa Anderson, one of our Distinguished Alumni Award winners for 2021. For the past 10 years, she's been Chief of the Commercial Air Travel Safety Unit at the United Nations Department of Safety and Security. She has a long history working in aviation and in industry groups and volunteering with a variety of organizations doing good around the world. She has two master's degrees from Embry-Riddle, one in aeronautical science in 1999 and one in business administration in 2003. I would like to add that the views that Lisa shares here today are her own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United Nations. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Alan. I sound fancy. <laughs> uh, so you're our first guest for season three of Talent Talks, and uh, we put together a new format, which is a little bit of a cheesy rocket launch theme. So uh, if you're ready, we're going to start with our pre-launch, and we're at T minus four questions. <laughs> <laughs> ready. Okay. So you studied both at the Daytona Beach campus and through our worldwide campus at Nellis Air Force Base. What was your favorite place to spend time when you were a student, uh, leisure time, not studying time? The first degree was at Nellis Air Force Base. Uh, most of the guys, there's only two females in the entire class, and all of the other guys were a combination of, um, oh, they were all pilots for the most part. So my favorite place to hang out was Nellis Air Force Base Club. There's an officer's club that I could go to with the other students, and then there was just a regular club. And that was my favorite place to hang out because there's nothing else. And besides, it's Vegas. So there's a lot of other places that we could get into a lot of trouble at. Well, if I only wanted to like study and reflect, I would go up to Red Rock Mountain. That was my favorite place in Vegas. And then in Daytona Beach, it's kind of a, a story. My favorite memory place is the chart house because one of the student, one of the guys in, the, in our group, um, the executive MBA program, every single group, he took us to the chart house and paid for it. And he was um, from the UAE. And he got to the point, you know, the first time he went there, he would clap for the waiters to whenever he wanted something. And of course, you know, we tried to explain to him, you know, that that's not the way things work here in America. And um, we're not, we're not going to get waited on if you act like that. But um, he tipped very, very well. And so you can imagine by, you know, fourth time there, as soon as we walked in, I mean, everyone would just run to whatever he needed. <laughs> because all of a sudden the clapping didn't matter because it equal to high tips. So <laughs> the chart has a memory. I'm sure if anyone in Daytona Beach used to work at the chart house, I'll remember him. <laughs> That's funny. That's a pretty good connection to have, too. Yeah, we ate well. Is there a particular song that takes you back to your Embry-Riddle days whenever you hear it? Yeah, um, I had to think about this. There's a part of me that doesn't even want to say it because I don't, um, I don't like the guy whatsoever. But the song came out at that time and we didn't know about the guy. And so that song was, I believe I can fly by R. Kelly. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that song. Right. And that, that was one when I was at Nellis Air Force Base for the first masters. And I remember I played it over and over and over and over again, because I was working on my masters and I was, you know, working full time and I was doing my flight training all at the same time. And so that became like an encouraging song. And then later I find out, you know, he had a good song at that one time, but in Daytona Beach, when I think about that, there's a country music, a country song that says just a swingin', just a swingin'. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's because our group, Daytona Beach at one time, I don't know if they still have it or not. I haven't been there for a while, but there's like this slingshot over the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. That's still there. It's the same guy from the chart house from the UAE. And I wrote it and he's up there screaming like a little girl. 
and I just started singing that song. We're just a swinging, and um, that kind of just really sticks in my head. <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. Mm -hmm. uh, what was your go-to late-night meal or snack back then? So at Vegas, Vegas, baby, it was um, the Rio, and that was a, a casino, and they had an around-the-world buffet. And at the time, that was the first one that had the around-the-world buffet. So you could go in there 24 hours a day, and you could have, you know, Mongolian, or you could have, you know, Chinese and Mexican, Indonesia, whatever. And that was my favorite place to go because people didn't argue about, you know, I don't like it here. <laughs> so that was our favorite place was to go to the Rio around the world at like 2 a.m. And then in Daytona Beach, that's another easy one. That's Krispy Kreme. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, we would always try to time it when it said hot now, because if the sign goes up, it says hot now. Yeah. They gave away free donuts. Well, of course. You got to go in there for the hot free donuts. Yeah, so we, we, would, we would do that. We figured out what time it was hot now there, and we made sure that every time it was hot now, I, just, I think it's like at three in the morning, maybe, two, two or three. Oh, wow, you were up late. <laughs> no, I didn't sleep for like five years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what, uh, it, it, it's a miracle your memory works at all. Um, <laughs> you know, I know when I don't sleep much, I don't remember much either. <laughs> Um, what class or professor had the longest lasting impact on you personally or in your career? Yeah, that's um, Dr. Bijan Basik. He's at Daytona Beach, and he is still very much a part of my my life. If I ever have a question, you know, um, with my current job role in aviation, if I have a, if I'm thinking through something a little complex and I need to run it off somebody, you know, kind of an if then scenario. You know, I, I want to run it off someone with you know, subject matter expertise. And so that's usually who I would go to. And then the other one would be Dr. Donna Rode. She was instrumental because I remember that I had, after getting my master's at Nellis Air Force Base, I kind of had regret because I'm thinking, darn it, you know, right out of high school, I could have joined the Air Force and I could have had the military pay for my pilot's license and I could have, you know, maybe even gone to the Air Force Academy and blah, 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 you know, and, th and that was something that kind of weighed on me you know, kind of like a missed opportunity. And she went to, she, she went to the Air Force Academy. And um, I remember she told me, she said they weren't ready for females then. Hmm. They just weren't ready at that point. And so I'm, I was very glad, you know, to hear that because it's like, all right, well, I didn't miss, I didn't miss a darn thing then. I missed probably a lot of drama and um, that was helpful. All right. That wraps up our, our pre-launch questions. Are you ready for the ignition and the launch burn? All right. Belting in. <laughs> All right. Thanks for playing along. There we go. <laughs> so you grew up in rural Kentucky and uh, National Geographic magazines are what connected you to the uh, sort of the outside world, for lack of a better term. I know Kentucky is part of the United States. It's not like totally remote, but is that what gave you the itch to see the world and travel and then get your bachelor's in tur uh, travel and tourism at Eastern Kentucky? That's exactly it. My dad was a professor at Camelsville College in Camelsville, Kentucky. He used to bring home National Geographic magazines from the library, old ones. And one brother used to use the maps that they that came inside of him and he wallpapered his, almost his entire room in maps. And he's an expat. He has not lived in the United States. He's an international um civil rights attorney. He works in law. He hasn't been a part of, um, he hasn't lived in the United States since 2003 or so. And so he really wanted, he did the Peace Corps. He really wanted to go overseas. That's what one brother did. And then for me, you know, looking at all the pictures, I just knew that there was a world out there that I wanted to see. You know, I wanted to see these people who are dressed this way and who are, you know, 
tending sheep and, and living in, in houses like that. I really, really wanted to see that. And that's what told us that there was another world out there. And um, we were just encouraged to be inquisitive and we wanted to see the other world. Unfortunately for me back then, aviation wasn't anything that I really thought of because back then, you know, in, in that area, the jobs were basically, you could be a nurse, you could be a teacher, homemaker. I mean, it was very um, stereotypical. And so I thought the best way that I could travel that was accessible to me at that time was to be a truck driver. So I wanted to be a truck driver because <laughs> that was the way I could travel. And then when I was 18, I was given a gift of going up in a hot air balloon by my aunt and uncle, Judy and Harry, and that changed everything. Now, all of a sudden, aviation has something that needs to be looked at. So at what point did you become a commercial pilot? Much, 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 much later. So I, I funded 100% of my own education, um, undergrad and all my grad schools and my flight training. And so I've always had to work. And in doing that, you know, there's when you're working, sometimes it's hard to figure out, well, can I really do what I want to do? Because, I, you know, if I have to afford it, I, I don't know how to make it all work. And so I kind of I learned about um, scholarships uh, much later than I should have. I found out that the best way to earn a lot of money back then was working on a cruise ship. So I went to work on a cruise ship in Hawaii for two years, and that was to save money to, at, at that time, I was going to go to law school. And I got accepted into law school, and I went and looked at some law books in Hawaii, and um, nothing held my attention. Trying to read those books, I'm like, oh, no. The guy there was like, well, maybe law's not for you. You know, sister, you know, he talks pigeon English, sister, you know, law not for you. No good, no good. Go, go find something else. And I walked around the bookstore. Is at University of Hawaii Manoa, and um, one of the rows had aviation, and I'm like, oh yeah. So I sat down and I read almost an entire textbook in you know a matter of a few hours because it just it was something that I liked and held my interest, and everything else went from there. Wow. So did uh, did you get a chance to visit any of those places you read about in National Geographic? I have. I remember um, Somalia, and I remember a story about the bonobos. Mm -hmm. Those are the most human-like um, um, primates. Yeah. And they are in, in DRC. So I've seen the bonobos and up into DRC. Democratic Republic of Congo? Correct. Good job. Okay. All right. <laughs> I do okay. I, I didn't read a, a whole lot of National Geographic, but I, I have a decent memory. <laughs> well, I mainly looked at the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. My brother's the one who read it, and that's why he's, you know, he's an expat, you know? Now, so uh, about 10 years ago, you created the UN's uh, Commercial Air Travel Safety Unit. Can you help me out a little bit as far as, you know, what, what's the scope of what you do and the, sort of the reasons uh, that that unit exists? Yeah, I can tell you what's um, public information. The very first secretary general that died in a plane crash was Dag Hammarskjöld, and I'm sure I'm slaughtering his last name. And he died in the 50s in a plane crash that, you know, still generates a lot of attention part of the conspiracy theories and such. So even back then, they, they talked about how, how, do, how do people know? And people mean, I mean, international civil servants, people who work for the United Nations or, or its um, subsidiaries. We do high-risk work anyway, you know, delivering vaccines, um, you know, working in very unstable places. So with high-risk work, UN staff should not have to die trying to get there, you know by aviation. And there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of sketchy airlines out there. And so the premise of my office was to design an office that would look at aviation safety on a baseline. 
and how do we determine which airlines meet minimum safety criteria? And that's pretty much what I do and what I've been doing. And I, um, what I do is only for the UN. Okay. So you're issuing guidance for UN members uh, and diplomats and such for when they're traveling? No diplomats. That's not the UN. Oh, I'm sorry. My mistake. Yeah. Only international civil, only for the agency funds and programs. So I work with about 140 focal points from, you know, about 56 or so UN entities. Okay. And then I provide guidance and then they in turn, you know, have decision-making. Yeah. Now, uh, you also uh, have a uh, history working at uh, the ICAO. I'm wondering how you ended up in a position where you had the opportunity to develop uh, this new division uh, in this uh, department of the UN. Yeah. So I've done just about every job in aviation except fly, you know, um, fly the line. You know, I flew corporate, but I never flew, you know, um, scheduled airlines. So I was a consultant in Washington, D.C., and as being a part of a consultant, um, and I was also very active with women in aviation. And women in aviation um, offered a scholarship for females who wanted to go to ICAO and to learn international aviation. And I was already in D.C. and I was already a consultant. And I thought, oh, I want to learn. I'm a member of women in aviation and, and I would like to learn more about international um, aviation. So I applied for the scholarship. And when I I went to Women in Aviation Conference, I learned that I did not get the scholarship. I was not selected because they selected students. But when I went to thank the lady from ICAO um, for, for what ICAO was doing, you know, providing these, these wonderful scholarships and this wonderful opportunity to young women, she asked me if um, I would still like to be involved. And I said, well, yeah. And they said, well, you're already established, so you're not exactly what I want, but we can use you as free labor. Would if you would like to come and as a part of this um, scholarship program, you pay everything yourself. We'll open the doors. We'll give you some projects to work on and we'll be happy to, to support you and your interest. And so I said, yep. So I went there. I think I was there for about three months and I helped them um, with um, a, um, developing a train, their training section, which is now a really big section. Um, so I helped develop their training the very initial stages. And then, um, then I looked at a few other little piecemeal things that they gave me, but it was a wonderful opportunity. And then after I left, after I finished it, I developed wonderful relationships and um, friendships there. And there was a, apparently there was this job at the UN, this opportunity, but they could not find the right mix of person. Um, so ICAO called me and said, well, we can't find a job for you full time here at ICAO, but there is a complex, I like solving complex aviation problems, basically. So they said there's this complex problem at the UN and they kind of linked me up to it and it just kind of fell in from there. Now, I'm curious about uh, yeah, sort of the, the safety side of this. Um, for, for this upcoming issue of Lyft uh, magazine, our alumni magazine, we have a story on how the aviation industry and regulators adjusted to the coronavirus pandemic, because um, from people that we spoke to, uh, you know, infectious disease wasn't necessarily on uh, everyone's radar as a safety issue. It was, um, you know, you'd be more concerned about pilot fatigue and passenger egress during, a, you know, an incident and things like that. But, um, you know, so they had to adapt to that sort of very quickly. And I'm wondering if that if, if that was a similar experience with you in your unit or did, was infectious disease considered part of it? Uh, it has it changed at all uh, what you guys do? No. Should it? Maybe. Um, is it? Not really, because we're looking at, you know, um, more of the, along the lines of what could cause, um, what's 
what could cause a catastrophic problem, you know, with in safety for um, for our staff members. It's kind of hard to know if if anyone a staff member would get sick. I mean, you can catch a cold from somebody, and if you're already autoimmune compromised, you know, you could die from a cold. I mean, we don't even know all the whoopies that people walk around with. So, so it's not really a part of um, it's not a part of our process. But you know, it is something you know, kind of of note. It is a data point you know that's interesting to look at. So if there, if we, if there's a, for an example, if there's an airline that says anybody can fly, no mask, no gloves, no nothing, go. Is that considered a good risk? You know, safety risk. I, 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 they still, the answer is still nobody knows. Nobody really knows. And so it's a good data point. You know, like oh, noted that this air operator is not following whatever guidance is being tossed down from ICAO. But but it's just more of a note. I don't know if that explains it well or not. It's it's uh, it's not cut and dry. So uh, changing gears a bit, uh, you wrote a guest column for Lyft Magazine back in the spring of 2016, and this, you said that um, you know international civil servant is not necessarily a, a everyone's dream job when they're a kid because you don't necessarily imagine that, right? Um, but I sense that you're really satisfied right now with uh, where you are and what you're doing. Can you tell me about something you've done in this role that made you feel uh, particularly proud or has been satisfying for you? Oh, yeah. I think it can unite to anyone's role. I mean, I think when you see something that wasn't there before and now it's making more sense to people and when you're doing something that you are really passionate about, I love aviation. I really, I, I think I do a good job. I think I'm good at what I do. I enjoy it. I work with some really incredible people. And I think the mission is, uh, more than anything, is I like the mission. You know, it's like uh, I live in New York City and I love Broadway. I can't wait till it opens again. You know, but how do you judge a Broadway show? Some people judge it on the dancing and the singing or the costumes or the, you know, is it a high production behind the scenes? For me, I like the storyline. You know, I want uh, I want a good storyline. It's the same thing, you know, in my work life. I, I need to have a good storyline. I need to have a purpose. It needs to be more than I'm just taking a piece of paper from here to there. It's it's that I I, I have a, a real role and and a, and a purpose at operational planning for um, for our humanitarian work worldwide. It, it's very beneficial to me. Now you have uh, two degrees from Embry Riddles, and they're both masters, and you got them in the you know, late '90s, early 2000s, well after your bachelor's from Eastern Kentucky. Um, was that the start of a career change for you? It was. That was right after the cruise ship, because remember, I went on the cruise ship to earn some money because I thought I was going to go to law school, and so I changed it all up. And that one that one day at University of Hawaii Manoa bookstore changed everything. Yeah, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a I'm an, av I'm an aviatrix or an aviation professional. And it just came pretty easy for me. Yeah. Uh, why two back-to-back Embry-Riddle -back, uh, uh, master's degrees? Well, to me, they didn't seem back-to-back -back at all. They seemed like they were. <laughs> but I guess they kind of were. But it wasn't, it wasn't planned that way. So when I got the first master's degree, like I said, I did my flight training at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then um, right before I finished the master's degree, I finished the last few classes in um, Eagle Vale, Colorado. And I had an internship at the airport there. And there I could, I'd learned um, altitude flying, mountain flying and stuff. Um, and, and I flew around there. And it was um, a wonderful experience. But then I started a small, you know, my mother got sick. And so I moved back to Kentucky and had a small business there. Emory Riddle had called me and said that there was this executive MBA program that they had been um, working on. And they didn't have very, uh, they didn't have any women in the program or very few women. 
they called to say, um, would you be interested if we had this, could you make this happen? And um, with scholarships and grants and et cetera, I was able to make it happen and they made it happen and the rest is history. I took, I took a huge chance and yeah, I got invited. Does Amy Riddle want to invite me to get a PhD? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in charge of that, but I'm sure they'd be happy to have you. I don't mind going through the work. I just don't want to have to pay for another one. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, so you've spent a lot of time in your life volunteering with uh, various organizations, including uh, 13 years at the Make-A-Wish Foundation, five years with the Night to Shine and the Tim Tebow Foundation. You foster and rehabilitate straight cats for adoption. Um, you know, it, you, you sound like a saint. It's really fantastic. But, but what was... What was the first experience that you had in a volunteer role that made you say to yourself, I need to always make time for this? So my one of my oldest and dearest friends, Patty, um, she had a sister. She was in Cincinnati and she had a sister named Lisa and um, Lisa died of leukemia. And right before she died, um, I guess I was probably eight, 17 or 18 years old back then. And um, before she died, she went through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, they granted her and the whole family a wish. And I got to see what happened. So it wasn't that they granted a wish just for Lisa because she was sick. The wish was for the whole family. You know, the whole family went and it was an opportunity to refocus the whole family from Lisa's illness. So it's an opportunity to be together as a family and have memories to talk about. So when Lisa said, I, you know, I don't feel good, then they can change the topic to how she felt to, oh, you remember when Mickey or Minnie did this and this and this. And, um, and I just saw how, how that whole experience just changed the whole focus and it changed the family. And so it's not about giving a kid something, it's about refocusing and giving the family a new memory to get through the tough times with. So when I moved to Los Angeles, that's the first thing that I did is I signed up to be a, a wish grantor um, with Make-A-Wish. And I ended up actually being a celebrity wish grantor too. I met Tom Cruise and Mel Gibson and um, Oprah Winfrey. There's a whole bunch of different places because when a kid wants to meet the star, I would take the kid to meet the star and, and then I would try to make sure because stars are you know they're people too and they don't sometimes they have bad days or they have a lot going on so I try to fill in the time to make sure that the kid's having a great time while the, the celebrity is doing whatever they need it to do and I would just I just I just remember the looks on their faces and I remember you know especially the little girl her name was Lisa too when she met Tom Cruise she just about hyperventilated and about fell over and and so now it's all about let's let's help her relax and and you know and actually Tom Cruise was phenomenal, phenomenal with her. But after I saw this, I'm like, you know, so volunteering, and because you're, you're tying this into the bigger volunteer part. So volunteering is, is taking yourself out of yourself and then trying to give something to somebody else. And you don't even know what they need, right? But at least you're giving them an opportunity to refocus from whatever is going on in their life to having a, a new um, talk point, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, now you've also done some mentoring work with, uh, with Embry-Riddle students. Uh, so can you tell me a bit about, um, what you've done, uh, and, and how you sort of helped, uh, some of them along what mentorship means for you? Well, first of all, if I'm going to be a mentor, somebody has to ask me to, and I'm not taking any mentors right now or mentees. Um, they have to ask me. And then what, what I try to do is not so much as being a counselor or trying to listen to, you know, their, their difficult stories. How do you get past 
this, you know, keep them focused on the real goal, keep them focused, making sure that um, if they're, especially if they're in college, look at your classes, how does that help you in the real world? Because, you know, memory when you're in high school, you're like, when am I ever going to use fractions, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, you use them every day in cooking. Every cookbook has fractions, right? And so it's about, um, so part of the mentoring is, especially if I'm in this industry, is how do you tie that into a, and having the conversations about tying it into, you know, what your ultimate goals are. And so with the mentoring piece, it's, it's also trying to teach them like um, being careful on social media that lives forever. When you start to negotiate for a job, you don't let someone else determine your value. Part of your interview process is providing the value that you are going to provide to somebody else. A lot of times they just want to say, oh, well, you're a new student. We're taking a big risk on you. Well, maybe so, but here's what you're getting. And then you can go back through your successes and what your individual and your unique talents are. Now, I, I noticed that several organi organizations that you've worked with are centered around, and you've hinted at this a little bit, uh, centered around supporting women specifically, like Women in Aviation International, uh, the Dream Store initiative that inspires girls to go into STEM fields. I know that uh, women are vastly underrepresented in uh, a lot of these fields, and these are great things that you're doing. Uh, what is it that pulls you to these kinds of organizations and causes and supporting women in them? Um, well, I have all brothers, and um, I, I grew up with more guy friends, I guess, than girlfriends. Uh, so I've always, and I've always worked kind of in a male-dominated industry. Women tend to limit themselves more than than they should. And we get paid less. We get, you know, the harassment can be a little bit different. You've got the old boys club. The treatment of women has always been, it's kind of hit or miss depending on what your, I hate to say social economic state is, but sometimes it is that. How do you defend yourself as an intellect or as an individual and not just your gender? That's why I like to work with the women because, you know, one thing's important is like, you know, like I've faced every negative thing that I think a woman can face, you know, working in an all-male world. But what's important is that I determine, not anybody else, I determine when it's too much or I determine if it's harassment. I decide if this is wrong or not. Because a lot of times I can say that's just a guy being a stupid guy, you know, a guy being a jerk or whatever. A lot of things, you know, I can just let it roll off. Um, but when I say, no, this is a problem for me, then it is an, indeed, this is a problem. This is not just, you know, I didn't like the way he treated me this one time. This is a, this is something that I'm going to be very passionate about. I'll follow through with this one. A lot of women, you know, they're either afraid or they don't want the repercussions. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be labeled as a problem employee or, you know, I don't want the publicity or, you know, some people, sometimes it's so much easier just to walk away from a, a negative situation. And there are times when, yeah, please walk away, just walk away. It's not worth the time. And there are other times when it's like, no, this, this is something that needs to be changed because it can, it can lead to changing a culture. It's not just one bad thing. This is something that has got deeper roots to it. And, and trying to figure out what that is, um, is something that um, I think every woman has to find out for themselves. And that's one thing I like to work with, with females. You determine your own value. You don't let anyone else. So, you know, like if you're a female, you know, a young girl in, in DRC and, and they don't want girls to go to school, but you want to learn, you, you, you should be able to determine if you can learn or not. You should be able to determine if you should have that right and at what point and how you should go about, you know, fighting for that is important. When you do take on uh, mentees, do you primarily choose women? Always. I mean, I'll talk to guys. I mean, I've got nephews and I'll be happy to... <laughs> I think they'll tell you, I'll be happy to give you advice anytime. You know? 
that's a problem with a consultant. You know, I've been a consultant now for so long. And a lot of the work that I do is, is kind of consulting because I provide advice and guidance, whether you take it or not is, you know, that's a business decision that gets a little rocky there. Sometimes you have to, sometimes if people want your advice and you just want to have a regular conversation, I'll talk to my, my nephews and I'll always talk to guys, but as far as, as having a, them as a full mentee, no, I've never had one. Okay. Yeah. Well, you certainly have a lot to offer. It sounds like uh, to to your female mentees. That's great. Um, now, uh, you mentioned in another piece of writing that um, uh, this is a completely different topic uh, that you used to have uh, an accent, but I gathered that you worked to get rid of it. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. So when I moved to Los Angeles, I had um, I, I got a job as a purchasing manager in an aerospace group. And then the, the head of the company, um, the owner of the company wasn't there when they hired me. And when he came back, he was this big guy from New York. And um, I noticed when I talked, he kind of like made this face and my accent to him was like nails on a chalkboard. He could not stand a really thick Southern drawl. And so he wanted me to take diction classes. So, and he said it was more for my own protection too, because I was smarter than I sounded. And he, he, he just couldn't get past that that folksy, you know, that Southern draw. If I'm really tired or talk to my brother, phone, I can bring it back. But <laughs> but I, I did work hard and I think he had my best interest in mind. I really do. I think he had my best interest in mind. And um, I, I worked to try to um, just be more cognizant, I guess, mindful of my speech because Southern accents, kind of lazy speech, you're like dragging words out and you're slowing it down, making syllables for everything. Yeah, yeah, a lot of sort of liaisons between uh, words and things. Um, I used to, uh, I was born in Brazil, and um, but I moved to the U.S. when I was fairly young, so I lost my accent pretty quickly. But my dad um, has still has a very thick uh, Brazilian accent, and I, I know he faced some struggles in his career as, as a result of it. You want to mitigate whatever stereotypes that people are going to have for you, you know, and, and I think it's extremely important that you're cognizant that, if, you know, maybe it could be the way you sound. It could be an accent. There's a, there's other reasons why maybe your life isn't working the way you want it to be. People have these um, unconscious biases and accents could be one of them. Luckily, I had a boss that told me to talk like a hick and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so now that we're, uh, we've completed the, the launch and we're solidly in orbit, I've got, uh, two more questions and then, uh, we can take a break before the splashdown. So the first one of these last two is, uh, what skills do you think are critical to succeeding in your line of work? I kind of equate myself to a quilter of unique and individual aviation pieces to ensure that international civil servants are well covered wherever they engage in air travel worldwide. And so, you know, when I, when I look at myself as a master quilter in that whimsical, folksy, Kentucky way, the skills are um, you need to have a well-rounded aviation knowledge. So a variety of different pieces within your uh, within the subject matter expertise. And also you have to have a degree of diplomacy and, and you have to be able to look, you know, vertically and horizontally. So the decisions that I make, so whatever I do, how can that, how many different ways can it be misconstrued? How many different ways could it be manipulated? How does it go outward and upward? And, and, and so you really have to think and really big, broad terms so that you can really encapsulate to provide very clear and succinct information on that one item and you're not causing more questions than, than, than you're answering. Sometimes when you answer you know, questions, you can create more questions. And so I think one of the skills that you have to have is that realization of 
of how do I look vertically and horizontally at my work to make sure that it is um, in line of what I need to be doing and that it is something that's going to be respected and, and useful. And I don't know what the name of that skill is. You know, there's a certain degree of diplomacy, but it's also a degree of perceptiveness. Okay. Um, so if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? I would say that it's okay to be smart and creative and it's okay to have unique talents that um, we're all created to be unique and we have an obligation to embrace and to celebrate and to fully develop our, our specific talents and our own uniqueness and that it's, 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 it's okay. Be smart. Good. Good. All right. We'll take a short break and then we'll come back for the splashdown. The Embry-Riddle Office of Alumni Engagement is back to hosting in-person events. If you're looking for networking opportunities, social outings, or informative webinars, visit alumni.erau.edu events to find out what's coming up in your area. We're also continuing to host virtual events open to alumni from around the world. If you're itching to return to your old stomping grounds, save the date for homecoming. Events are happening on October 1st and 2nd in Daytona Beach and October 7th through 9th in Prescott with virtual events filling the week in between. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash events for more details. Now, back to the show. All right, now it's time for our five splashdown questions. You're a, a licensed commercial pilot, so if you could fly any plane ever made to any destination, what would it be? Oh my goodness gracious. Any plane ever made, it would be a stole aircraft short takeoff and landing, and I'd want to fly in Bhutan. All right. All right. Um, what's a book that has been really important or influential for you? Um, it's a book called, um, it's a, a strange title. It's called Healing Your Church Hurt, Hurt by His People um, by Stephen Mansfield. But uh, what the book is about, it's, it's the best book on forgiveness that you could ever read. It is amazing because a lot of times, you know, you, we make mistakes in our lives and we, we need to forgive ourselves. People do things to us or things happen to us that it, it requires a certain degree of forgiveness. And a lot of times you're like, I can't get out of this loop in my head. Right. And it's the best book I've ever read on forgiveness. That's great. So who's your favorite cartoon character? Piglet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. He's just a silent little guy that just just, just happy to be a part of the world. You gotta love that piglet from from Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on. Okay, just making sure I'm picturing the right guy. Um, all right. Imagine that you can go to the Olympics and and compete in any sport. What sport do you choose? Okay, am I good at it? I mean, uh, you got into the Olympics, so presumably so. I got into the Olympics, so I'm good at it. Okay, um, it is going to probably be either ice skating, dancing, figure skating, or it's going to be you know, the, um, where you fly off the, the slalom, the ski slalom, the big leap. Oh, the, the ski jump. The ski jump. Thank yeah. you. That's terrifying. <laughs> I think I would only do that if I had a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, if you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? Shirley Temple Black. She got to sing and dance and be on TV and movies. And then she became an ambassador. She, um, She's done some amazing things. Um, or Lucille Ball. Oh, yeah. 
because I, I, I like that kind of physical comedy. Yeah, that's absolutely great. Yeah, I would do that until I got too bruised up and then I'd be done. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Well, thanks very much, Lisa, for joining us for the Talent Talks podcast. And congratulations again on earning the Distinguished Alumni Award from Embry-Riddle this year. Well, thank you. I didn't know I earned it. I think I was just handed it. I, I'm shocked and I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank, thank you and thank Embry-Riddle. All right. Uh, Talent Talks is a production of uh, the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement and the students at Wicked Radio. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. And Lisa, where are we reaching you? I'm in New York City. This episode is recorded by me and edited by Cindy Puckett. Michelle Day is our program manager. Edmund Odarte is executive director of alumni engagement. And Tony Brown is executive director of communications. Please send us your thoughts about our show. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link or email us at alumni at erau.edu. I read all your messages. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.